Good evening, church. Well, if you were here on our last uh, regular Sunday night service, we started something new, and that was on June the 3rd. So if you were not here on that evening, um, the service was recorded, and you can go back and read uh, or listen to what we covered on that particular evening. Um, in June and July, we do certain things on Sunday morning. We have for some years now uh, had small groups meeting during the week, and, and they would be studying something that would tie in to what we did on, on Sunday morning. On Sunday nights, though, we really haven't tried to do anything similar to that, but we are this summer, on June and July, for this uh, next few Sunday nights. And uh, we're only, let's see, I think on July the 15th, we have our Free Range Fellowship. We won't meet that night, but the rest of the Sunday nights will be here. We are looking at some of the background behind Southern Baptists, uh, what it means to be a Southern Baptist. We'll look at that in one of the later sessions. But right now, we're just looking at some history, and, uh, and I'm trying to keep it casual. I want it to be casual, so much so that you can holler out or ask a question and uh, make a comment. Hey, hey thank you. So um, uh, we, want it, we want it to be uh, informal that way. When we're finished, I'm going to simply pray and dismiss. Now, if you have a spiritual need tonight, uh, I will be down here, Mike will be down here, and at the conclusion of the service, we would be happy to take all the time you need if you need to talk to a, a, one of the pastors tonight. But tonight, uh, what we did just by way of review in our last gathering, we talked about the impact of what historians call the first great awakening on Baptists particularly Baptists in the South. First Great Awakening was an event that occurred during the colonial period of what would become the United States. Before there was a revolution, we were just colonies, and from about 1740 to 1745, 48, there was actually a lot of visits, but there was particularly a man named George Whitfield who came preaching the gospel, and he was so powerful and so different than the other pastors and preachers and so anointed by the Holy Spirit of God that 20% of the population of the colonies at that time, not just through his preaching, but through all the different preachers that were preaching, 20% of the population came to faith in Jesus Christ during that first great awakening. Can you imagine what would, that would be like if in our nation today 20% of the population in just a few years came to know Jesus? It, it would be remarkable. And so it was a remarkable period of time. It was during that era, there were already some Baptists in the colonies at the time. They tended to be, they had certain characteristics, they tended to be very uh, small churches. They tended to be very Calvinistic in their doctrine. When I say Calvinistic, I'm, I'm referring to a, a way of understanding the gospel that puts more emphasis on what God does in salvation than on what a human being does in salvation, emphasizes God's part almost to the exclusion of man's part. And so they were, they were intensely focused on that, and you'll see an illustration of that this evening. And, uh, and so the bottom line is the churches were not growing. They weren't starting new churches, and there was very little happening. And dear ones, if that was all that ever happened with Baptists, we would not be sitting here tonight. Because Southern Baptists, as we have known them, would not exist. There were 
uh, different groups, congregationalists, there were Presbyterians, Methodists came in during the First Great Awakening. And there were people who had gone to church their whole life and they believed in, like congregationalists and Presbyterians, they believed in infant baptism. You baptized as a baby, you became part of the church. And some of those people came to know Jesus during the First Great Awakening. And the result of that was is that they were excited about Jesus and these other people who had grown up in church and were just part of the church were like, these people were fanatics. And so every denomination at the time had a group that they typically called Old Lights and another group called New Lights. You can guess which one was which. Uh, the New Lights were on fire for Jesus. And there were a group of them in Connecticut that we studied last time about, a group of them in Connecticut that, that migrated all the way out of congregationalism and they became Baptists from conviction, from reading the Scripture, and they were on fire for Jesus. They'd been born again, and, and they discovered that they believed what Baptists believe, but they weren't like the other Baptists. The other Baptists were called regular Baptists. The other ones, these new ones, were called separate Baptists. And we saw last time how a group of them migrated to the south there are already some churches in the south, but within a generation, hundreds of churches have been started out of this new group of Baptists, the separate Baptists. They settled at a place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina, and within a generation, they had started the first Baptist churches in Georgia and South Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama and Mississippi, and they just blew across the south. And so that's kind of where we left it last time. We just looked at the impact of the first great awakening on Baptists, and Baptists as we know them in the south are directly traced to that. Now, some historians will go all the way back to the 17th century, and we'll talk about the appearance of Baptists in England and all that kind of stuff. That's, those are the Baptists that were already here. I'm telling you, spiritually or symbolically or whatever language you want to use, they were dead as a doornail. They were not reaching the world for Jesus. They, they just weren't. And so this new kind of Baptist was born in the midst of revival. So tonight I want to talk to you about the birth of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're, we're going to pick up where we stopped last time, which is, was uh, America is a brand new country. The United States have been um, created. You've got these Baptists that are blowing across the south and, and the frontier region at the time, Kentucky and Tennessee. And, um, and so how did Southern Baptists come to be? You've got Baptists growing now in the north out of this new brand of Baptists. They're growing up and down the east coast, and um, hundreds of churches are being started. But where does Southern Baptists come in? Well, there was an event called the Second Great Awakening. Now, I personally believe that's a misnamed event because revivals just never stopped once they started in this country. Um, but the Second Great Awakening, most scholars will trace to a place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky in 1802, where there was a massive revival that took place involving multiple denominations, and several thousand people came to faith in Christ on the frontier. And it was very much a part of the spread of Baptists, but also Presbyterians who were on fire for God and Methodists who were on fire for God. And out of Cane Ridge, this, there was this revival that took place. And Revival sprung up again and again and again and again in different parts of the country all the way up to, some people say, to about 1840. So it lasted about 40 years. And that's when this country's growing and expanding um, and, and you have this tremendous movement of, of, uh, towards God that's taking place. And so the Second Great Awakening 
also saw phenomenal growth among Baptists. In Kentucky, they added 10,000 Baptists to the churches. Across the South, Baptists grew from just a few hundred in 1740 to over 110,000 by 1814. Just tremendous growth. Now, um, this Second Great Awakening, uh, we gotta, we got to start our story outside of Baptist life. In the 1790s in London, England, there was a man named William Carey. How many of you heard that name before? William Carey. He was a, he was a shoemaker. He was also a Baptist. And he started a mission society to raise money from individuals and churches to send missionaries overseas. And William Carey was the first to do that. Uh, in the 1790s, at the same time that William Carey was doing this in London, uh, there was a revival that took place in the upper part of the Connecticut River Valley. Several people got saved, but it, it, it engaged or affected a small little college in uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is up in the extreme uh, northwest corner of Massachusetts. I've been there. And there was a campus revival that took place. It was an all-male institution, Williams College, and a revival took place. And several students, juniors and seniors in particular, were affected during this revival. Um, they began meeting, and I've, I've gone back and read the journals of some of those students. They began meeting twice a week to pray. And they talked about the atmosphere on the campus and how very real the presence of God was to them. And they, they, um, they saw God do just miraculous conversions in the lives of students. So they were meeting twice a week. On one particular occasion when they were meeting together to pray, a group of students had just been in their geography class, and they were studying geography. They'd studied about India and China, and they just became overwhelmed and this is a sense of the presence of God again. They just became overwhelmed with a burden to see the gospel go to a place like China or to India where all the heathen were that didn't know about Jesus. That was what they were thinking. And so they went out on this August afternoon, and it began to rain. And so not, not uh, having any other shelter, they ran under a haystack. Now, I have tried really hard to see what hay looks like that you can get under like that. And I've got pictures of that sort of thing, but that's what they did. They went under a haystack, and they began to, um, to talk about their class, and they made a commitment, that group of students, to work at sharing the gospel, raising money, starting a new mission agency to send missionaries overseas. And uh, those students, led by a man named Samuel Mills, and later they were joined by a man named Luther Rice, um, came out of that haystack with this commitment to start a new mission effort. They went to Andover Seminary. There they met a man named Adoniram Judson. All these young men are congregationalists. They're not Baptists. They're congregationalists. They believe in infant baptism and that kind of thing. Um, by 1810, they formed what they were wanting to form, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. It was the first mission organizations for foreign missions. In 1812... Five young men, several of them got married at the last minute, uh, were commissioned to go overseas. In their ordination service, they read Psalm 67. I want you to hear what was read at their ordination service. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And that was their heart. They wanted to take the gospel to the nations. And so in 1812, the first band of missionaries uh, left American soil to share the gospel overseas. Very first time that had happened. Now, something remarkable happened on board the ship. Two of those men, Adoniram Judson, who was married, Luther Rice was not, uh, wanted to understand, because they knew they were going to meet William Carey, they wanted to understand how God could use a Baptist to start foreign missions in England. And as they began to read the scriptures about Baptists and what Baptists believe, they became convinced that as Congregationalists, they were in error to practice infant baptism. They embraced what's called believer's baptism. What is believer's baptism? Anybody, what is believer's baptism? Baptism after salvation, right. We believe that a person has to be old enough to understand for themselves and to embrace the gospel for themselves before they can follow Christ in baptism. And so they became Baptists on board a ship filled with Congregationalists, money raised by Congregationalists to send them overseas. Now, I jokingly say that when they got there, Luther Rice and Adam Judson flipped a coin to see who would go back and raise money for the new Baptist work. But that's what happened. Adam Judson and Ann stayed in Burma. Luther Rice came back to raise money from Baptist churches. And this had never been done before. And so now, not only did the Congregationalists have missionaries overseas, but now Baptists did, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. Now, Adam Judson became a celebrity among Baptists. I mean, he was as big as, you know, Lottie Moon or something like that. They, they wrote letters. Those letters were shared with churches, and they were extremely popular among Baptists. And it just captured the imagination and captured the heart of Baptists both in the North and in the South. Adnarm Judson was married to Ann Hazeltine. Um, they, uh, she, she um, let's see. Let me get, get to where I want to be. He got there in 1812. In 1819, he baptized his first convert. How many years was he there? Seven years before he had one convert. That's challenging, isn't it? But stayed there seven years. 1823, he translated the New Testament into Burmese. In 1824, he was in prison for 17 months. In 1826, Anne died. He married again, Sarah Boardman. She translated the Old Testament into Burmese, the Old Testament. And then she died, and he married again. I, I wouldn't want to have been the third lady. But in 1850, he finally died. So they were the first ones. And have you ever heard of Judson Press? Judson Press? Well, maybe not. Uh, Judson, Judsonia, Arkansas? Uh, Judsonia, Arkansas is named after Adoniram Judson. Uh, Judd Clegg? It's named after Adoniram Judson. He is. All right. We need to talk now about the Triennial Convention. The Triennial Convention. Um, Luther Rice's efforts to raise money got churches to come together and meet every three years. Their purpose in meeting was to celebrate, discuss, and talk about what was happening overseas with missions. They met every three years, triennial convention. There are not Northern Baptists or Southern Baptists. They're all just coming together every three years to, to, uh, to, to raise money. The uh, triennial convention 
was formed on 18th of May, 1814, met at the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia. There were 33 delegates. They formed, and this is the formal name of the group, General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States for Foreign Missions. And, um, and so they met every three years. Their headquarters were in Philadelphia. It was called a convention. It primarily functioned as a society. Let me talk to you about the difference between a society and a convention. Go ahead and flip that next slide. Society versus convention. Um, a society, is, is that all there is? Go ahead and bring it all in. Go ahead and bring it on. There it goes. Next one. One more. Great. Um, you can look at that. I, I'm not going to read every one of those, but a society essentially is composed of in, individuals committed to a certain mission or goal. A convention tends to be composed of churches, and that convention sends representatives to a meeting, and they deliberate and make decisions together. What's the difference? Well, as Southern Baptists, we don't raise money from individuals. We raise money through churches. In Arkansas right now, um, Washtenaw Baptist University, Williams Baptist College, Arkansas Baptist Children's Home, uh, Camp Salome, those are all entities that you own as Southern Baptists, but um, they are not allowed to raise money from churches. Do you know why? Because we're a convention. We pull our money together. It's called the cooperative program. Each of those entities receives a percentage of those gifts. Every dollar you give, a percentage of that goes to the cooperative program here in Arkansas. And it's divided up here in Arkansas. And then it goes to Nashville. It's divided up again. Supports the International Mission Board. Supports the North American Mission Board. Supports six seminaries. Supports the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It, it, it uh, does a lot. Um, now, Washtenaw, for whatever it's worth, Washtenaw, Williams, Children's Home and all those, they can raise money from individuals. They can send you all the letters they want as an individual. Uh, but they're not allowed to raise money directly from churches. Anyway, uh, society versus convention. The uh, society is accountable to contributors. Um, the convention is accountable to messengers. Two weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention met in Dallas. They meet for two days every June. Uh, that is the Southern Baptist Convention when they meet for those two days. The rest of the year, all business for Southern Baptists is conducted by the Executive Committee in Nashville, Tennessee. But we're an independent church. We're completely autonomous. We make our own decisions. Nobody in Little Rock tells us what to do. Nobody in Nashville tells us what to do. We don't have a Baptist Pope. Oh, there's been a few preachers I've wondered about. In the north, they preferred the society method for supporting missions. In the south, they preferred the convention method. Uh, the Triennial Convention went on to start some other things. They started a newspaper in 1818. Um, they started doing home mission work out west, which would have been Kentucky, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, places like that. In 1820, they began Columbian College in Washington, D.C. Um, they started too much too soon. They started in 1817, and within four years, they had all these different things, and the money was getting spread too thin. And so they had to back up, and uh, they reverted to the society method. They, uh, there was a shortage of funding. That Columbian College that was started became George Washington University. And Baptists finally uh, withdrew from it completely in 1904. 
but the Northern Baptists uh, stepped away and went back to a society model. And um, they, um, there were just a lot of changes. I don't want to dwell on that, that too much, except the, the Baptists in the South didn't like it. And they were kind of chapped because they felt like the Northerners just were throwing their weight around. Um, also started during this period was the Baptist General Tracts Society in 1824. They printed Bibles, tracts, hymnals. It brought a sense of unity to Baptists in the North and the South. Even after the split occurred, uh, this Baptist General Tract Society became the American Baptist Publication Society. And the Baptists in the South used it. The Baptists in the North used it even after they divided. And so they became the American Baptist Publication Society. They had a chapel car ministry, uh, churches on wheels. Uh, they would go pull that train car up to some little town that didn't have a church, and they'd start holding services. They'd start a church, and then they would make them get off the car, <laughs> and they'd move it someplace else and start a church. Pretty cool. If you go in Arkansas, there's a railroad track line that runs from Monticello. I'm trying to get a picture in my mind. It runs from Monticello up through uh, maybe Dumas to Witt. I don't know. I'd have to get a map and show you. But, but uh, we used to go to churches when they were celebrating their anniversaries, their 100th anniversary or their 80th anniversary, whatever. Um, these churches were all started as the railroad line uh, built tracks through that part of Arkansas. And you can almost just date it by when the railroad tracks went down. So it was interesting. So that was a big deal. Uh, the American Baptist Mission Society formed in 1832, the Home Mission Society. Um, they primarily uh, served churches outside the South. They focused on starting churches in the West, where almost half the churches had no pastors. Uh, let me pause there before I, before I finish that story and talk about early divisions among Baptists. Today, in the United States, there are probably, I'm guessing, anywhere from 16 to 20 different kinds of Baptists. Did you know that? There are. In Arkansas, we got several. And, um, and there they are for different reasons. But, but there were some very early divisions, and some of those early divisions color some of those different groups to this day. One of the unexpected consequences of the Second Great Awakening was an emphasis on two things. One was primitivism or restorationism. The other was a very extreme form of Calvinism, hard shell or hyper-Calvinism. Uh, primitivism was a commitment to do church the way it is in the New Testament. If it says it in the New Testament, we can do it. If it doesn't say it in the New Testament, we're not going to do it. And they wanted to restore the primitive church, if you will, they want a New Testament church. They want to restore it. These other churches have drifted. They've gone off into error, and they're doing practices that you can't find in the Bible. And so the, there was this thrust to just do it the way the Bible does, does it. Uh, the hyper-Calvinism um, just grew up out west, and it was very popular in Kentucky and Tennessee and, and uh, northern Alabama and places like that. Let me give you an example of a couple of these. These tended to result in an anti-denominational spirit or an anti-mission spirit. One example that I want to give you is a guy named Daniel Parker. He's one of my favorites. Daniel Parker is a legend in Texas history. Started the first Baptist church in Texas. I wouldn't go to it, but he started the first one in Texas. 
Um, he was a frontiersman. He was a friend of Sam Houston. He was, he was a big part of Texas history. Part of his family was massacred by Comanches when they built a little bit too far the head of the Navasota River. They built a fort, and they came in and raided it, and one of his nieces was carried off, Cynthia Ann Parker, spent the rest of her life just about living with Comanches. Her son, um, Quanta Parker, went on to be the last great chief of the Comanches, and um, he didn't like Indians. So anyway, um, Daniel Parker. He founded the two-seed-in-the-spirit predestinarian Baptist church. Now, you thought just going to win Baptists might be hard to say. What kind of Baptists are you? Well, we're two-seed-in-the-spirit predestinarian Baptists. Uh, what he actually began to teach was that when Eve sinned, that she had allowed the seed or the, the evil of the enemy to get into her life, her, her, her body physically, and for the rest of humanity, uh, you either carry within you the seed of Satan or the seed of Jesus. And so you are at birth predestined to go to heaven or to go to hell based on what was in your blood, you know, two seed in the spirit, predestinarian Baptist. And so you didn't have a choice. And so why do missions? It doesn't matter. If you've got the seed of Jesus in you, you're going to go to heaven. If you've got the seed of the devil in you, you're going to hell. We don't need missions. And so he really did take that position. And so that's why he's one of my favorites. He's one of the crazy ones. Um, here's another one. This one may be a little closer to home. Uh, an example of restorationism. Alexander Campbell. In 1811 with his father Thomas, they started a church in western Pennsylvania in Washington County. I had ancestors that came out of that county. Um, they, uh, they eventually became Baptists, and, and again, restorationism is that desire to get back to just what does the New Testament teach. And we, we're going to say that that is the true church that does it that way. The rest of them are false. And so there's only one true church, and that's the church that does it the way it does it in the, says it in the Bible. Alexander Campbell. In 1830, ultimately, he formed a non-denominational movement a non-denominational denomination called the Disciples of Christ. Uh, in 1832, they merged with Barton Stone's Christian movement to form the Christian Church. In 1906, they split to form the Disciples of Christ and the Church of Christ. You ever heard of them? You can go to southern towns, many of them to this day. I can take you to one in Tennessee I'm thinking of right now. And there's a, there's a First Baptist Church and there's their large Church of Christ. And you can go back to this time period when a group of Baptists pulled out of First Baptist Church and started the Church of Christ. Historically, uh, most of the oldest Church of Christ churches started as Baptist churches. In fact, one of the old names for Baptist churches were the Baptist Churches of Christ. Uh, one of the, the feature uh, teachings of Alexander Campbell is you were to cleanse the churches of all human tradition, no instrumental music in church. What we just did was wrong. Where's Jeff? He can sing, but Susie can't play. Uh, restoration of the church in New Testament format. Rejection of Old Testament's authority. Uh, faith is mental assent to Christ's atoning death. They did believe in believer's baptism, but they also believed in baptismal regeneration. Now that regeneration word is one of our words that's coming up on Sunday morning. But regeneration is simply a way of describing the new birth. 
that when I trust Jesus Christ, I am born again. And it is a work of the Holy Spirit that changes my human spirit from being cut off from God. Uh, when I'm born again, the Holy Spirit of God makes me alive. My spirit's been dead to God, and now it's alive to God. Regeneration. But they believe in baptismal regeneration, meaning you don't get born again until you're baptized in water. You have to be baptized in water. The irony of that is that is also a Roman Catholic teaching. The infants who are baptized are regenerated. Baptismal regeneration, that you must be baptized in order to be saved. And, of course, the classic argument is, well, what about the thief on the cross? You know? Uh, some of you all are old enough to remember when there would be these traveling um, preachers that would come into town and Baptists and Church of Christ would hold debates. Any of you all ever hear that or see that years ago? It was probably 1950s, 1940s. No? Happened in Arkansas. Um, anyway, they, had, they hold communion every Sunday. What we did this morning, they would do every Sunday. Uh, they reject all confessions of faith and their anti-missions. Now, restorationism, the impact on Baptists is this. A lot of Baptists were hearing Church of Christ preachers say that we are the only true church. And so some Baptists said, no, no, you're not. We can trace... We can trace our church all the way back to the apostles. We know that I was baptized by a certain preacher. I'm a preacher. I was baptized by a certain preacher. He was baptized by another preacher from an association in such and such place. And, and they would just keep going back in time, and they would find these people because technically Baptists, we are not part of the Protestant Reformation. There were always groups who looked like Baptists and acted like Baptists. There really were. They're different from us, but they kind of look like Baptists, and they acted like Baptists. And they would trace them through these histories all the way back to the apostles, this, this um, incredible effort to try to show historically that this Baptist church is connected all the way back to First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And the name for that particular brand of Baptists is Landmark Baptist. You all familiar with that term? Well, that's where it came from. It was a reaction to this restoration movement um, in the early 1800s. And they said, well, you think you're the only true church? We can one-up that. We can trace our church all the way back. It's a Baptist form of apostolic succession. You know, that's one of the claims of the Roman Catholic Church is that we can trace our authority all the way back to the apostles. And Baptists, some Baptists were doing that very same thing. In Arkansas, we've had a couple of groups that have split off over the years. Um, that are considered landmark Baptists. The American Baptist Association, based out of Texarkana. You know, any of you all familiar with that? And the other one is the Baptist Missionary Association. Um, that uh, there, there are churches here. BMA, the BMA Church, uh, holds that. Although they are very different in their spirit. Let me put it that way. The way they approach things. Okay. So let me go back now and pick up our story. And um, Irene, who work, works back in the media suite, didn't think I could finish all of this tonight. But I'm just trying to give you a flyover of our history. So I want to talk to you now. Southern Baptist Convention is formed in 1845. All right? So kind of keep that in mind. There's three key factors in this process that brought Southern Baptists apart, around. First are differences in method. We were just different in the way we did things from Northern Baptists. 
Secondly, there was a controversy over home missions. Not foreign missions, but home missions. And thirdly, there was a controversy over slavery. And I want to touch on all three of those, and, um, and then we'll, we'll close. First of all, differences in method. In the North, they preferred the society method. The South preferred the convention method. We've already talked about that. Southerners truly resented the actions taken by the Northerners at the 1826 Triennial Convention where they just got rid of stuff. They said, we're not going to support that. We're not going to support that. We're just going to support foreign missions. They moved their headquarters from Philadelphia to Boston. Now, I don't know if you're looking at a map. Maybe you know this already, but is Philadelphia closer to the south or is Boston closer to the south? Philadelphia is closer, so they moved it further away. They moved it to Boston. Boston. It's a nice place to visit. Differences in method. There was controversy over home missions. Southerners perceived that most work by the Home Mission Society was done in the West and the Upper Midwest. They weren't starting churches in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and that bothered them, or in Arkansas, um, although some did. Judsonia was started by American Baptists. Uh, they started a little college there, and they were American Baptist mission effort. Judson College. It's not there anymore. I've tried to find it. Uh, the public schools in Judsonia sit on the old property of Judson College. Um, but it was an American Baptist effort. We have a First Baptist Church of Wynn, Arkansas, that was started as a mission of American or Northern Baptists in the Delta because the Delta was a, a mission considered a mission area. And so American Baptists or Northern Baptists were active even in Arkansas for a season. But we perceived as Southerners that the Home Mission Society was not working in the South. Most missionaries preferred uh, to work in the West and the Upper Midwest. Few Northerners volunteered to serve in the South among Baptists. Most church planning in the South was done by local associations. What association are we a part of right now? Tri-County Associations, a group of churches, covers how many counties? That was a test. Just seeing if you're listening. And, uh, and so an association like Tri-County said, we're going to start a church. And so most of the church planting in the South was being done by associations of churches. Uh, the Home Mission Society tried diligently to correct the imbalances, but with little success. They did try. The biggest issue, though, is slavery. I don't care what anyone tells you. Uh, Southern Baptists formed as a direct consequence of the national debate over slavery. Uh, there's no question about it. Slavery was the main issue leading to the split. You need to know that both Northern and Southern Baptists owned slaves. Um, even if you study secular history, the lines between North and South and where the anti-slavery movement was is not as clear-cut as people would like to think. Uh, slavery became profitable in the South, but it lost appeal in the North. Uh, Anti-slavery views were spread in both the North and the South. Um, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there were Baptists that opposed slavery. They were saying, we ought not be a part of this. This doesn't please the Lord. In 1789, uh, Virginia Baptists declared slavery to be, quote, a violent deprivation of the rights of nature. 1789. Um, in 1835, the Sandy Creek Association. Why is Sandy Creek significant? That's where 
the revival hit the Baptists in the South, and it just exploded. Sandy Creek Baptist said, we don't support slavery. They voted against buying and selling of slaves. And um, however, in 1822 in South Carolina and 1831 in Virginia, there were two major events that took place that pretty much shut down the anti-slavery voices in the South. The first one was a rebellion involving a man named Denmark Vesey, African-American South Carolina, 1822, rebellion, a lot of people killed. He was finally killed, uh, scared a lot of people. In 1831 in Virginia, Nat Turner led a revolt among slaves. He was inspired by biblical texts. Killed 57 whites. He was ultimately executed, and it scared people. And even if you opposed slavery, you didn't say anything about it in the South. Richard Furman in 1822, and by the way, Richard Furman was a spiritual grandson of Shubal Stearns, who was the man that was saved in Connecticut as a Congregationalist, became a separate Baptist, came and started the Sandy Creek Church. Uh, Richard Furman is a direct spiritual descendant, if you will, of the uh, Sandy Creek Baptists. But he wrote a defense of slavery based on his interpretation of the Bible. I'm not going to read all of that, but, um, but that was pretty much what a biblical defense of slavery looked like in the early part of the 19th century. What's interesting is that Baptists in the North and Baptists in the South for a long time tried to hold it together. The mission... Uh, societies and the institutions that were being supported by Baptists on both sides uh, did their very best to adopt a stance of neutrality. They were not going to enter into that debate. Our concerns about the gospel, they would say. And so we're not going to pass judgment on people on this issue of slavery. We're going to try to operate. That became impossible to maintain that position, but they tried for a season. In 1841 and 1844, both the Triennial Convention and the American Baptist Home Mission Society issued official statements of neutrality on slavery. And the statement said that these societies would remain neutral concerning the issue of appointing slaveholders as missionaries. So if Susie came and she was a slave owner and she wanted to be a missionary, if I was one of those agencies, that wasn't going to be a factor in my decision. But it was. And even though they didn't say that, it was a factor in their decision. Um, Georgia, um, North Carolina, Virginia, those state conventions threw up test cases to the boards. They really were trying to provoke um, a clear picture of what was happening because it was obvious that slave owners were not being appointed as missionaries. And so Georgia came up with a test case. They tried to nominate a man named James Reeve, who was a slave holder. Um, they said it was a test case. They were doing it on purpose. Uh, his nomination was rejected by the society because it was only a test, and they weren't going to take the time to actually consider him because it was a test. It was, um, as you can imagine, that was not satisfactory to Baptists in the South. Same thing happened with Virginia Baptists. They called a meeting of all Southern Baptists. They met at the First Baptist Church of Augusta, Georgia. And on May 8, 1845, 293 of those people formed what was called the Southern Baptist Convention. W.B. Johnson was the first president. 
He was from South Carolina. Uh, it was his uh, organizational principles that are still embedded in the way we conduct ourselves to this day, which are primarily parliamentary and democratic processes. And um, he was the one that organized all of that. Um, I'm not going to read the, the rest of this. When, when he gave his address, you can go out and Google it sometime. If not, I'll help you find it. I've read it. When he gave his address, uh, the inaugural address for Southern Baptists, he made it very clear that what they were doing in his mind was to support the spread of the gospel. And the reason they were doing this is because slavery was being used as a criteria on whether to appoint people as missionaries. So it's not a, it's not a happy past, is it? Uh, I can remember uh, I... Um, I don't get to do it very much, but one of my hobbies is to look up dead relatives. Anybody else have that hobby? They call it family tree research, genealogy, but it's, it's dead relatives is what it is. And I can remember the first time I, I came across an ancestor who owned, owned slaves. And then I found that ancestor selling off a daughter of one couple to somebody else and thinking about how that little girl was separated from her family. Um, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. This is still a national discussion. Uh, Dustin and I and some others went to uh, uh, 50th anniversary of the Martin Luther King assassination, the MLK 50 conference, not too long ago, a couple months ago. And, and it's still um, something that's festering in our culture. Now, thankfully, uh, our denomination over and over and over again has disavowed our association with slavery in our history. In the 1990s, they actually, as, as the convention, passed resolutions very publicly uh, renouncing slavery and seeking reconciliation and forgiveness for a part of our ancestors in that activity. Uh, we are probably one of the most, if not the most, diverse denomination in the United States, uh, ethnically. But, um, but it's still, we can't deny it. You can't, you can't, we shouldn't try to deny it. That's, that's how it started. Um, the reason it continues, I guess, to hang over our head is because we never re reunified with the Northern Baptists. That's another part of the story. That comes later. But we never reunified with them. The Methodist Episcopal Church of the South reunified with the Methodists in the North. Presbyterian churches in the South that pulled away, they reunified with the Presbyterian churches in the North. We didn't. We didn't. We kept plowing ahead. And I can remember when I started in ministry, going to Canada, knocking door to door, sharing Jesus with people, and they would say, what are you? And I'd say, Southern Baptist. And they said, what are you doing up here? And uh, that opens up a whole other can of worms. Why are we calling ourselves Southern Baptists when we're in all 50 states and, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world? Um, it's hard for us to change some things. We like being called Southern Baptists, apparently. Um, 
They tried to introduce a new name some years ago, Great Commission Baptists, but GCB just doesn't have the same ring as SBC. 